Hey there, and welcome to episode 49. As always, thank you for hitting that play or download button to have a listen to my ramblings about all things movie-related past, present, and future. As of this recording, it's Saturday night, April 23rd, and if it's okay for me to mention this, today marks one year to the date that I launched this podcast. So with it turning one year old and episode 50 coming up next week, I'm looking back and thinking, damn, that was fast. In today's episode, we're looking at two movies, for the most part, very different from one another, but in one sense, they tread similar territory. And as you probably already know from the episode description, we're talking about 1950's Sunset Boulevard, a bleak and cynical film noirish tale of, among other things, a silent movie star who fancies herself a much sought-after actress whose public desperately awaits to see her return to the big screen, thus living a life of delusions of grandeur. And 1952's Singing in the Rain, a high-spirited, campy, brightly lit, technicolor musical tale of, among other things, a silent movie star who fancies herself a much-sought-after actress whose public desperately awaits to see her on the screen, thus living a life of delusions of grandeur. One shows the dark side of celebrity in depictions of deceit, jealousy, possessiveness, betrayal, narcissism, and desperation to dramatic and shocking effect. And one shows the dark side of celebrity in depictions of deceit, jealousy, possessiveness, betrayal, narcissism, and desperation, to melodic and toe-tapping effect. But before we go any further, given the possibility that there may be some listening to this and thinking, wasn't he just talking about Dune in the last episode? And now this one is looking back at the 1950s, when things were old? <laughs> then take note, as actress Lauren Bacall once wisely put out there, it's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. I'm your movie-loving host, Frank, and this is episode 49 of Silver Screeners. Now, to look at both Sunset Boulevard and Singing in the Rain, we'll follow the usual format of most episodes, and we'll begin with a spoiler-free plot setup of both films, and then you'll get the spoiler alert for a spoiler-filled list of behind-the-scenes fun facts. And finally, we'll close out with the poll results, trivia, and listener shout-outs for the final segment. So tell Mr. DeMille you're ready for your close-up, grab your umbrella and galoshes, and be silent no more as the film industry bids you to speak. In other words, it's now time for the spoiler-free plot setups. Let's begin with Sunset Boulevard, the cinematic word of warning about the downside of celebrity. It was nominated for 11 Academy Awards and won three of them, musical score, art direction, and writing. The other nominations went to cinematography, editing, best picture, director, and all four main members of the cast. William Holden and Gloria Swanson in the leading categories, and Nancy Olsen and Eric von Stroheim in supporting. Holden plays the sardonic, weather-beaten Joe Gillis, a down-in-his-luck Hollywood screenwriter. At the beginning of the film, we're treated to daybreak shots of Sunset Boulevard, and the sights and sounds of ambulances and cop cars racing towards a mansion. Holden provides the voiceover narration. Yes, this is Sunset Boulevard, Los Angeles, California. It's about 5 o'clock in the morning. That's the Homicide Squad, complete with detectives and newspaper men. A murder has been reported in one of these great big houses in the 10,000 block. You'll read about it in the late editions, I'm sure. You'll get it over your radio and see it on television. Because an old-time star is involved. One of the biggest. But before you hear it all distorted and blown out of proportion, before those Hollywood columnists get their hands on it, maybe you'd like to hear the facts. The whole truth. If so, you've come to the right party. You see, the body of a young man was found floating in the pool of her mansion, with two shots in his back and one in the stomach. Nobody important, really. Just a movie writer with a couple of B pictures to his credit. Poor dope. 
He always wanted a pool. Well, in the end, he got himself a pool, only the price turned out to be a little high. Let's go back about six months and find the day when it all started. It's not a spoiler to say that through this narration, William Holden is in character as Joe. And it's Joe whose screenwriting career is dead in the water. Just like he literally is, floating face down dead in the swimming pool. We first see him floating in the water with cops and rescue personnel staring and gawking at him. Dead in the water, literally. What in the hell happened, and what kind of opening is this, you may ask? Stay with it, because this is just the tip of the asteroid. On a side note, what's interesting is that the camera appears to be completely submerged in the pool because we're looking up at him. But director Billy Wilder couldn't have a camera that deep in the water, at least not in 1950. So he achieved this effect by placing a big-ass mirror at the bottom of the pool and shooting into its reflection. We're taken back to six months ago, and pretty much all but the last scene of the film is told in flashback by Joe, like he's speaking from beyond the grave. We see Joe having trouble convincing the studio executives that the script he just wrote is viable. They're not having it. Into the office walks Nancy Olson as Betty Schaefer, script girl Woundekind. Without realizing who Joe is, she proceeds to tell the exec that he doesn't want to waste too much time on the script that she just finished reading, that it's trite and uninspired. The exec responds by saying, uh, Betty, Joe here wrote it. So she goes to get a glass of water to wash down her foot. Joe bitterly leaves. Joe's agent on the golf course is no help and suggests that they cut ties. And to make Joe's sunshiny day all perfect, his car is about to be repossessed because of delinquent payments. So he drives off trying to lose the repo men who are chasing his sorry ass all over the streets of Los Angeles. He does manage to shake them off his tail when he turns onto Sunset Boulevard sees what he thinks is an empty, abandoned mansion. It's fallen into disrepair. It's not maintained at all. He notices the garage door is open, so he pulls in. And that's when fate steps in. A butler named Max, played by Eric von Stroheim, steps outside, mistakes Joe for someone that Max was expecting. And Max brings Joe into the mansion, upstairs to a room where Joe meets Norma Desmond. <laughs> Norma Desmond, played by Gloria Swanson, thinks that Joe is the guy she's been waiting for from the animal funeral home. There's a dead monkey, you see, that she has lying on its back on the table with a blanket draped over it, and its hand is limply dangling off the edge. Joe grimaces and tells her that she's got the wrong guy, that he was just looking for a place to get his car off the road. She gets pissy and says, get out, and that's when he recognizes her. He says, you're Norma Desmond. I've seen you in silent pictures. You used to be big. And she looks at him with a haughty expression and utters that famous quotable, I am big. It's the pictures that got small. She goes off in a tirade about how the film industry had to go and ruin the integrity of the art form by adding sound. She says, we had faces then, but then they opened their mouths and out came talk, talk, talk. He says that he's only a screenwriter, don't yell at him. She gives him a look that would crack the paint on a hooker's toenails and says viciously, Oh, so you write words, words, more words. Bad move, Joey. So after he faces this rhetorical firing squad, she asks him to look over a script she's been working on for herself. Not a comeback. She hates that word. It's return, she declares. A return to the screen for her millions of fans around the world who've never forgiven her for leaving them. So he figures, what the hell? I need the cash. She's happy because she's living in this delusional mental state of thinking that the fans she had back in her heyday still remember her or even care. 
Max is happy because his sole purpose in life is to make Norma, or as he calls her, Madame, happy. This working relationship between this young man and middle-aged woman then gets a little hot and heavy, or as hot and heavy as the senses would allow in 1950. And eventually, he is a gigolo, a kept man, emasculated, but drowning in all these gifts she gives him. Watches, a tux, new clothes, money. He services her. She clings to him. Betty Schaefer re-enters the picture, under circumstances I won't reveal. Norma loses her shit more and more steadily, and real-life former silent movie stars like Buster Keaton cameo as themselves, as does legendary director Cecil B. DeMille, he of Samson and Delilah, and The Ten Commandments. I mentioned the Oscar nominations that Sunset Boulevard got already. This was the same year, though, as another film about aging actresses and how they cope when they feel abandoned, and that was all about Eve, which snagged Best Picture, Director, and Supporting Actor for George Sanders, among others. All categories that Sunset Boulevard was nominated in. Best Actress went to Judy Holliday for her performance as a gum-chewing floozy in Born Yesterday. Best Actor was Jose Ferrer for Cyrano de Bergerac. Supporting Actress was Josephine Hull for the Jimmy Stewart film Harvey. Editing went to King Solomon's Minds. And Cinematography to the Orson Welles noir classic, The Third Man. But I'm going to stop with Sunset Boulevard there. There is not a snowball's chance in hell that I would even consider giving away any of the plot twists or the directions that the story goes in. But trust me, it's messed up. Get yourself into a cynical frame of mind and just enjoy the film. Rent this bastard, download it, stream it, do whatever it takes to get this onto your viewing queue. If you want to see a dark satire of the movie industry and how it uses people, then throws them out like they were hand wipes in the men's room at the bus station. This film's very existence de-glamorizes and criticizes everything having to do with stardom, fame, wealth, love, marriage, dreams, and Hollywood as a land of magic. And you'll be the life of the next movie theme party you go to if you walk up to your host and say these nine words. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Just check it out. For now, though, let's pivot towards Singing in the Rain, a splashy, happy-go-lucky musical that brings on more cheese than the state of Wisconsin. Splashy. See what I did there? Thank you. This film's very existence glamorizes and glorifies everything having to do with stardom, fame, wealth, love, marriage, dreams, and Hollywood as a land of magic. It came out two years after Sunset Boulevard, but to get the full story of Singing in the Rain, you have to go in between the two, to the year 1951. Producer and songwriter Arthur Freed worked with Gene Kelly on a movie musical called An American in Paris, which got the Best Picture Academy Award for 1951. With this clout, Freed knew that he wanted to re-team with Kelly. So he dipped into his bag of old tricks and pulled out a bunch of songs he had written previously with his songwriting partner, Nasio Herb Brown. He sorted the songs out around an entirely original script, shook them out, and out came Singing in the Rain. As the film opens, the year is 1927. Gene Kelly, Debbie Reynolds, and Donald O'Connor, each holding an umbrella and wearing a yellow slicker, happily jaunt towards the camera without moving forward. They must have been on one hell of a treadmill. And they sing the first verse of the title song right before the opening credits begin to roll. Once those end, the establishing shot is of a huge movie theater marquee, with a crowd of about a zillion all gathered in front of it ready for the premiere of the latest film starring Don Lockwood, played by Gene Kelly, and Lena Lamont, played by Gene Hagen, two silent film superstars. Both Don and Lena are supposed to be equally egotistical, but Lena's the one who's really established as the narcissist as well as the one with the brains of a goldfish. Don grants an interview to the entertainment reporter who's on duty, which is how we get all of the plot exposition and the background of the characters. 
His best friend, Cosmo Brown, played by Donald Ocano, works behind the scenes as the piano player. They grew up together, been best friends for years, and even came to Hollywood together years earlier. There are some amusing flashback scenes that show how they both got into mischief together as kids, got their stat together in vaudeville, how Don eventually found work as a stuntman, and his first run-in with Lena Lamont and how their frequent on-screen collaborations were the brainchild of R.F. Simpson, the head of the fictional movie studio Monumental Pictures with the charisma of a codfish. Honestly, you're not going to find a hell of a lot of plot in this movie. Like I said, it was a story that was very loosely structured around mostly pre-written songs. But it's light, it's fun, it's enjoyable, it's campy, it's over the top, it's corny, but I can think of a hell of a lot of worse ways to spend about an hour and a half. All you really have to know about the story of Singing in the Rain is that the first talking picture comes out. R.F. Simpson at first arrogantly mocks the idea, but then goes apeshit once audiences gobble it up and prove that this is the wave of the future and the talkies have spoken. Cosmo loses his job as the piano player for silent pictures, but he's made head of the music department two seconds later. Don, being Gene Kelly, has no problem transitioning his acting career to include diction and elocution, but as for the conceited pain-in-the-ass Lena... She does manage to look glamorous and lovely. No one from the outside would guess that she's trash. But someone who has not even entered the discussion yet is Kathy Selden, played by a 19-year-old Debbie Reynolds. Kathy's an aspiring actress who meets cute with Don. The romantic spacks fly, Lena gets pissed, Cosmo plays music, RF chases the cash, Lena squeaks, and Don taps, and taps, and taps, incessantly. It won't stop. Which is all peaches and cream at first, since you know you're watching a musical. But when a 20-minute long dance sequence that has absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the movie stretches into what feels like the third or fourth hour, you find yourself making tea, throwing in another load of laundry, walking the dog, writing a chapter of the book you've been working on, cooking up some crowned rack of lamb, and then returning to the TV and sitting back down just as the smoke finally stops bellowing from Gene Kelly's feet. But if you prefer to skip this sequence, as I do every single time I use it in my film class, just be ready to hit that chapter skip button on the remote seven. Put down the Q-tip, you heard that correctly, seven goddamn times. But I have to lay it on the line. Singing in the Rain is fun to watch. It doesn't try to revolutionize cinema or change the world or be thought-provoking in any way. It just simply wants to be light, frothy fun. It wants to entertain. A feast for the eyes and ears and a showcase for the dancing skills of the cast, which it is a showcase by God. Alrighty-roo, so let's now issue the spoiler alert as we dive into a few behind-the-scenes fun facts for both films. So if you want no spoilers, hit pause now, go watch the movies, and then come on back and finish this up. It'll be waiting for you. First up is Sunset Boulevard. Number 5. The concept was thought up by Charlie Brackett and Billy Wilder, longtime screenwriting collaborators. Brackett's original vision was a comedy, with Norma Desmond triumphing in the end and getting her long-awaited comeback return. Number four. Billy Wilder would go on to direct the film and turn it into a more pessimistic tale of loss and desperation. He claimed that his experiences in post-war Europe impacted his perception of human nature. Number three. The casting of the character Norma Desmond was no picnic in the pack. Wilder originally wanted his friend and fellow gossip, 55-year-old Mae West. But according to the biography, Billy Wilder in Hollywood, after he offered her the role, she, quote, recoiled in disgust because she did not consider herself a faded flower, end quote. She was enjoying the company of young studs when she was as old as 84, God love her. Number two. 
the exterior shots of Norma's mansion. That was a real mansion on Wilshire Boulevard, not on Sunset. It belonged to the family of J. Paul Getty, and it's the same exact one used five years later in the James Dean film Rebel Without a Cause, when Dean, Natalie Wood, and Salmoneo hide out from the hell-raising gang out to get them. In the years since, the Gettys tore it down and replaced it with an office high-rise. And number one. Probably comes as no surprise that the big brass of the film studios in town were astonished and infuriated by the way that Sunset Boulevard depicts the Hollywood studio system. At the premiere, MGM chief Louis B. Mayer let loose on Wilder, screaming, quote, You have disgraced the industry that made and fed you. You should be tied and feathered and run out of Hollywood, end quote. And Billy Wilder's trademark blunt response, quote, Go fuck yourself, end quote. As for Singing in the Rain, try these on for size. Number five. The film was a hit in its initial release, ranking 10th in the list of the biggest box office hits of the year. In 1977, the American Film Institute voted it one of the 10 greatest American films. And in 1989, it was the only musical to be included in the first group of films selected by the National Film Registry at the Library of Congress. Number four. That interminable dance medley was not part of the original plan. Gene Kelly envisioned a comedy dance sequence for him and Donald O'Connor, but filming ran behind schedule, and O'Connor had to withdraw because of a TV commitment he had already made. So Kelly hired Sid Charisse, a classically trained dancer. The two of them would go on to co-star in the films Brigadoon and It's Always Fair Weather. Number three. Donald O'Connor performs a memorable number called Make Him Laugh, which has him running up walls, making out with a dummy, and straddling a huge piece of lumber. The problem was that the song was a total ripoff of a little ditty called Be a Clown from Cole Porter's 1947 MGM musical The Pirate. According to MentalFloss.com, the film's co-director, Stanley Donan, admitted that Make Him Laugh was, quote, 100% plagiarism, end quote. And I have to admit that it cracks me up that the song was stolen from a movie called The Pirate. Number two. I mentioned already 19-year-old Debbie Reynolds as Kathy Selden. This was her first leading role. She had never danced before. So for three months, for seven to eight hours a day, she learned from three different teachers how to dance. And she had to learn fast. After one particularly grueling dance lesson, she went under a piano and burst into tears, convinced that she would never please Gene Kelly, who was a notorious perfectionist. Who found her and offered her his personal help? None other than legendary hoofer Fred Astaire. He brought her into a nearby rehearsal room so that she could watch him practice a dance number for Royal Wedding. He made sure that she realized that even he found dancing difficult. She was forever practically lighting candles in his name from then on for his kind gesture. And number one. Jean Hagen's Lena Lamont squeaks and squawks her way through the movie. But Hagen actually had a quality singing voice. Remember when Kathy Selden dubs Lena's singing voice? That was Jean Hagen singing. So, Gene Hagen was dubbing for Debbie Reynolds, who was, in the context of the movie, dubbing for Gene Hagen. Did you catch that? One additional bonus fact about Singing in the Rain that I would like to offer you is actually something that is unconfirmed. I'd heard for years that the scene when Gene Kelly was singing the song, Singing in the Rain, that the rainwater was not showing up on camera because of the lighting, so they actually used watered-down milk so that the raindrops would show up. I've seen sources that confirm, and I've seen sources that deny this, so I honestly couldn't tell you which is the truth. But what I can tell you is this. 
Gene Kelly was suffering from a fever the day that he filmed that sequence. So if you take a look at the close-ups of his face as he's singing the song, Singing in the Rain, you can see that there's sweat in his face as well as the fake rain. So whether he was a notorious perfectionist who drove people crazy, a very talented dancer and actor, or an egomaniac, or any and all of the above, there's no denying this guy's commitment to his work. And with that, let's pivot towards the poll results for this episode. So I put out on my socials the following question. Who would win in a Grand Diva Smackdown, Lita Lamont or Norma Desmond? Lots of activity on both Facebook and Instagram. Norma Desmond won by a pretty large margin with a total of 11 votes, where Lena Lamont managed to accumulate three. Some of the comments that came in include this from the podcast Two Drink Cinema. I'm going with Lena Lamont. Feels like she'd be pretty ruthless to get whatever she wants. Mary C. says that Norma Desmond was, quote, a badass. And Jennifer S. had something interesting to share. My great-aunt Jean Hagen, of course. She was a feisty lady. Okay, that kicks ass, Jen, that she was your great-aunt. Jen and I were in the same class back in college in the far-off 90s. She had mentioned her relation to Jean Hagen to me before. Thank you, Jen, for sharing. Great to hear from you. And thanks to everyone who played along, and keep your eyes open on my socials for the next poll. Just check out the Silver Screeners group on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter at FilmBuff1974, as well as Instagram at FrankMendoza1974. Or you can email silverscreenerspod at gmail.com. And that brings us to the trivia segment. And to reiterate, it does not matter when you send in your answer. No matter what episode you're listening to, if it's farther back or if it's the most recent one, answer any trivia question at any time. You'll get a movie-related meme with a personalized greeting and a shout-out in the next episode no matter what. And I'm always happy to help out fellow creators. If you have a website, if you're writing a story, a song, a fugue, if you have your own YouTube channel, a podcast, just say the word. And as I always like to confirm, I don't want to take the liberty of announcing both first and last names, just in case it makes anyone feel uncomfortable, which is why I always do first name and last initial. But if you say otherwise, then full names it is. So last time, I had on the show Liz and Greg, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, to talk about both the 1984 and 2021 versions of Dune, when the following trivia question was put out there for mass consumption. Name the philosophical 2016 film cleverly disguised as a sci-fi thriller starring Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner, and Forrest Whitaker that Denis Villeneuve, director of the 2021 Dune, directed. Amy Adams plays a professor of linguistics who's recruited by the government to communicate with extraterrestrials who've arrived on Earth. And the answer is Arrival. A virtual high-five goes out to Mary C., Thank you for continuing to listen and for doing the trivia as often as you do. Very much appreciated. Also getting a big huzzah is Chris from The Movie Psycho. I had the privilege of guesting on his podcast recently. We talked about the 35th anniversary of The Princess Bride. You don't want to miss that or any of his episodes, so check his show out. Thanks, Mary and Chris. Movie-themed memes coming your way. As for this episode's trivia question, here it is. Singing in the Rain star Debbie Reynolds would go on to be nominated in 1964 for an Oscar for the movie musical The Unsinkable Molly Brown. Who played the non-singing version of the same character of Molly Brown in James Cameron's 1997 film version of the same story of the sinking of the Titanic? Here's a hint. She played Annie Wilkes in 1990's Misery and Adam Sandler's overbearing mother in 1998's The Waterboy. Send your answers on over. 
And as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments, thoughts of your own on either of today's films, hit me up on my socials. Once again, that would be FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, The Film Group, Silver Screen is on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or email silverscreenispod at gmail.com. And that concludes episode 49. Feels like this one was pretty short, but as always, thank you for taking the time to listen. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already, and no complaints here if you give this show a rating on Apple, iTunes, Good Pods, Spotify, wherever you're listening from. Ratings and reviews help to get more people to find the show, and it also helps me because I accept any and all feedback. I want this show to be something that you want to keep coming back to. So if you want to leave a quick review, that too would be great. Thank you again, and I'll be seeing you in the next episode. And until then, wishing you good health, good weather, and good movies. And of course, keep on screening. And I leave you with this deep thought. Was Gene Kelly singing in the milk, or is it urban legend? If it's true, then old Bessie must have felt properly pleased to have the product of her udders be part of an iconic moment in Hollywood history.